We get in-depth with Rocco DeLeo about restaurant build-outs. Here's the full-length interview from episode 4. If you heard the first half of the interview, scroll to the 34-minute mark to listen to the rest of the episode. Find Rocco's information in the show notes below, and click the link to our newsletter to stay up to date with the show and subscribe to future episodes. Tell us how you got into this and kind of your day-in, day-outs. Yeah, so, um, you know, how I got into this, I I pretty much stumbled into it, Um, you know, being young, drafting, sketching, you know, not really knowing what I wanted to do, but knew I had an interest in in design and knew I had an interest in in drawing. And, you know, I had a good mentor who kind of pulled it all together for me and led me in the direction of of going to architecture school. So I did and, um, you know, just kind of fast forward till now, um, you know, from where I started off at, uh, you know, just focusing on residential work, that evolved into doing restaurant work. Um, you know, one of the cool things that I learned out of the whole recession was you had to be diversified, um, you know, given that uh, the recession hit the residential market so hard. Um, the group that I was with prior to me going off on my own only did residential and pretty much went belly up, um, lost their last client. I got laid off. Um, so I really had nothing better to do but to open the doors to my own business. So I did. And I ran with that from. January 1st, 09 is, uh, is when RD Studio was created. And from there, I grew into restaurant work when I got introduced to uh, Andy Fortzheimer and, and Sasha Marbatus, uh, who are the co-founders and owners, or previous owners, of Bar Taco and, and Barcelona Wine Bar. And I don't know what they saw in me, but uh, you know they saw something that I didn't see in myself because I knew nothing about restaurant design whatsoever. So those two guys gave me an opportunity to um, to head the and create their design department because they didn't have it when I joined them. So uh, so from there they they really taught me the ropes of of restaurant design uh, operations, um, how restaurants flow, how to make money out of a restaurant that flows well. Um, you know, good, uh, you know, uh, good directions to go in from a design perspective and, and what to stay away from. So through all of those years, you know, kind of ended up where I am now with, uh, you know, me continuing to run my own business, um, where we focus on a whole bunch of restaurant concept on a national level to a local level, you know, to working with Justin and helping him out on, you know, wherever he needs help on you know, his next endeavor on this new restaurant. By the way, when's it going to open? Yeah. Uh, well, you know what I know. <laughs> I'd love to know <laughs> that Wasn't right the last now. number 190 days? Yeah. 190, somewhere close. around there, ballpark. Yeah. So when That you, seems close enough. So when you came in now, too, and started working with the uh, Barteca restaurant group at that time, right? Yeah. How many restaurants did they have already operating to the point where they said, all right, now it's time that we bring somebody in to really develop this concept a little bit better and, and really navigate the architecture? architectural standpoint of it. Yeah. So they had seven restaurants uh, when I rolled in in 2012. Um, and at that point, uh, they uh, they were invested in uh, by a local uh, PE group out of Greenwich. Uh, and they knew at that point, uh, and, and part of the structure of the investment was, you know, they needed to scale both concepts. Um, so they knew that they needed to bring architecture uh, an interior design in-house. And that's, you know, when he went searching for someone and, and found me. 
So you, uh, so you sit down, you start having talks, and I, I can imagine that your sit down is asking, what do you want to accomplish in this? Uh, did you have a direction that they were looking to lean towards with their properties and, and developments? Yeah, I mean, you know, when Sasha and Andy were doing it by themselves, um, Sasha's the creative director behind, um, you know, both concepts. He's the one who pretty much created the vision for them. Uh, doesn't really have a formal uh, uh, culinary background, but he understands food. He understands the simplicity of food, uh, you know, without overdoing it, kind of just letting the raw nature of, of, of protein and produce kind of be what it is, you know, rather than dressing it up with, you know, too many sauces that makes chicken not taste like chicken. Mm -hmm. um, so he brought that aspect to it, and he brought the business aspect to it, um, but, uh, you know, when they brought me on board, it was all about scaling, scaling fast, uh, to about four or five restaurants a year. Um, but more importantly, you know, through that whole process, you know, one of their biggest goals is that they didn't want to be a cookie cutter restaurant, uh, having each concept, you know, look familiar to one another, uh, you know, have those similar traits that a brother and sister would have, but, you know, understand that, you know, everyone has their own personality and they wanted every single one of those restaurants to have their own personality. And one of the things that they did incredibly well was each restaurant fit into the context of the neighborhood they were going into. And, you know, yeah, Barcelona's and Bar Tacos, again, they all generally look the same, but, you know, we always kind of looked at the culture and looked at the neighborhood to see what it had to offer um, and kind of pulled those inspirations into the design to, to make it, you know, your local restaurant, your local bar so that people were familiar with it rather than this, you know, space shuttle from, from outer space just kind of dropping and plopping in the middle of a neighborhood and everyone wondering why the hell it's there. And and that's really true, too, as we do have uh, Barcelona and Bartaco, uh, Bartaco are not really on the West Coast at the moment, I think, no? No. Uh, excuse me. They have as Denver or Colorado is as, as west as they go. Well, we're, we're heavy up the east line. They're very uh, much. And when you do walk into all of them, they are all very familiar, yet completely different simultaneously. So for an instance here, Porchester's Bar Taco is almost nothing like Stanford's Bar Taco or go further up the line to where's the next one? Darien, Westport area? Westport. And they're all similar, but n absolutely nothing in that layout is really the same. Correct. Um, you know, all of it's bar-centric. You know, the, the bar is the heart of, of that restaurant. Um, but, you know, one thing that differs from Bar Taco Portes to the Bar Taco Westport, um, yeah, the color scheme is the same. But, you know, Sasha had the brilliant idea of, you know, going to the local Westport library and, and talking to the local historian there and pulling a whole bunch of uh, pictures from the archive of kids playing on the beach, you know, old lighthouses that exist there, beach houses, and pulled in all of these, you know, photos as the artwork for that restaurant, again, to kind of bring it back to, um, you know, to the context of the community. That's almost like a, a Easter egg, if you will. i never known that as many times as I've looked at all the photography around the restaurant at all. I, I would have never thought that came from somewhere from the history of the town as yeah. far as a generic stock photo would be. That's a nice little point. So how many restaurants did you actually have your hand in designing from when you started with them to when you stepped away? Uh, so there were seven. Uh, when I left, there was about 35 restaurants in total. So, Jeez. yeah, so... It's a solid number. Yeah. 
so you mentioned that the bar is the heart of the of the restaurant and bar taco, right? And Anuma's described Manhattan as the kitchen being the heart of the of the restaurant. So, what, what do you think when you're designing? What's like the driving force of deciding whether you want the bar to be the heart or the you said bar centric or whether it's like kitchen focus? Well, listen, you know, it all comes down to the concept. It all comes down to the restaurant tour, right? You know, I'm just a tool that that someone's hiring to kind of help turn this idea into a reality. Um, you know, I did that for Andy and Sasha, and I'm doing that for all of my clients now. Um, so, you know, it all again, it all comes down to to the concept. You know, do you want a more bar centric design and concept, or is it more culinary driven? Um, you know, and from there is is really how you start master planning uh, that floor plan and, and the orientation of the kit of parts, and maybe it's a combination of the two. Um, you know, we explored. Uh, this similar idea of, you know, what if, you know, it's not just bar centric and what if it's not just, you know, culinary driven? What if we literally tie the kitchen to the bar, you know, and have it as, you know, this one grand experience? Um, you know, we've done that before. Uh, so. You see that a lot with like oyster bars where they have like the oyster bar exactly. connected to the bar. So there's always something going on and you sit down and a lot of actions. What was the uh, thought process behind Eugene's? Because that's sort of an interesting concept that ties into the food and the bar and just the general appearance. Well, we yeah. should really intro Eugene's also, though, as, as being almost like an old school diner, right? Correct. Um, you know, when um, <clears throat> when David Dabari, the, the, the chef owner of, of Eugene's, approached me, um, he all he told me was that he wanted this badass, unique, chef-driven diner set in a 1970s basement. That's awesome. And that was it. You know, that's that's what he gave me, that that one statement. And what was your first thought after hearing that? Like what what one unique like item or showpiece stood out in your mind? You know, one of the things that that got me really excited about it was when he told me he wanted a rotating uh, cake display case. <laughs> you know, and he wanted to make sure that the rotating cake display case was literally you know, what we would call the bar, what we would call the cake, yep. I mean, the, the kitchen. Uh, you know, in this particular restaurant, it was a cake-centric, you know, restaurant. Literally, he wanted to make sure no matter where you were in that restaurant, from when you walked in to when you walked out to the bathroom, that everything and everybody revolved and saw that cake display case. And it's and, right there and right at the end of the bar. And that's, you know, what we did. We started with pinpointing where it was and worked the remainder of the restaurant around it. And what's really interesting too, uh, in, in that design, I actually just went in there for the first time uh, a few months ago and I had some bone broth and it was served to me in a teacup, which to me I said is fantastic. I'm just sipping my soup out of a cup essentially. But the uh, top 50 bar list just came out recently and Dante's in New York City uh, top that bar list with number one and its layout is really the layout of a cafe. Um, so it took some of that old minimalistic attitude and, and simplified design to really be something that stands out very different. And once I saw that and I saw Eugene's, I said, this is very similar too. this is a almost a modern retro diner, if you will. Uh, the front of the bar area when you walk in, it has that three-inch padded uh, elbow area where you could put your arms down. You didn't get rid of that at all in, in the build-out here. Um, the back of it 
on the right-hand side is an open kitchen, so you can see everybody cooking your food as well. And then there's tables to the back of this restaurant. Uh, it really is a beautiful thing. And as the tables keep on turning, as time goes and different things become popular and trends, I feel like we're almost at the beginning area of the cafe's revitalization. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's kind of one of the things that, um, you know, we focus on. Um, you know, we're not the design firm, and, and I don't think any of our clients are either, you know, where they're looking for these elaborate, you know, showcase and showpiece Ferrari-type designs uh, that feel pretentious and, 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 you know, not approachable. Um, you know, a lot of the concepts that we're doing are really just subtle gestures of textiles, finishes, and, and, and fixtures, you know, to just the way that I look at my you know, work is almost just kind of putting a very simple backdrop to let the food kind of speak for itself, you know, so that, you know, at the end of the day, people are going to a restaurant to eat, not to go observe architecture and interior design. You know, so how simple can I make a table to make that plate of bone marrow in a teacup, you know, look incredible? Um, you know, that, that's, that's what we, you know, philosophically kind of, gear all of our designs to and around when you also look at these these build outs in your head do you ever make it overly too complex for yourself and then take a step back and say hold on this doesn't have to be this complex it could be also simple always we always start high and then kind of work our way down um and not high like we're over complicating things um or high over designing things but you know we're always dreaming big uh, dreaming big and, and trying to kind of rethink, you know, what a wine case can be, but yet still make it functional and not make it glamorous, um, you know, or, or, or rethink a tabletop or rethink a table base. Um, you know, we're, we're always dreaming big and thinking high and, you know, then we get the reality checks of budgets and, you know, and, you know, some way or some way we kind of start value engineering things out and, you know, without compromising the overall goal of the concept and find middle grounds and, and run with it. But this budgets always get in the way. I was just going to ask like, you. Like in, every time. If the, we could just get rid of budgets. I mean, like unlimited money, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we just had unlimited money. <laughs> Did you have to scale some things back with Smokehouse, New Rochelle, oh, yeah, Virgin I doubt too? It. Justin's a pretty logical guy. Like, he definitely stays within the budget at all times. No, I definitely don't. Mike, Mike probably <laughs> I was gonna say, Mike looks like back to guy. the budget. I'm like... I don't know. I have the crazy idea. Like, oh, we can't spend two hundred thousand dollars on. Just trying to give you credit. I didn't want everybody to know your secret. No, we're not getting an Instagram counter and Facebook counter to let people know how many people no, we that, have following. That's that we did. That, we already that, have that. that. We did. No, that we did. <laughs> All right. So when when someone gives you an idea like that, right? Like you say, he just gave you a sentence, and he goes, "You know, build this restaurant." How much of it comes? Are you drawing off of like imagination or like your own head, or do you start like, "All right, I gotta go hit up some diners." Well, that's what we did. I mean, the first thing that we, the first thing we did, we we took a tour. Uh, David, his wife Kathy, um, uh, Mandy, my my senior designer, and myself, we took a trip down to New York City, and we just we had one particular restaurant they wanted to go see, uh, and they wanted us to see, and then we kind of wandered around aimlessly and just kind of gathering inspiration, um, you know. But to to your first question. You know, a lot of our designs comes from experiences, comes from our travels, comes from, 
you know, our books and, you know, our, our design and our design heroes and, and, you know, just a lot of it, just constantly absorbing ideas and constantly absorbing, you know, ideologies of, of good design and good practice and, you know, wait for the opportunity like you knocking on my door asking me to design a restaurant for me to just pour it onto that piece of paper. Um, so it's not like we're just pulling things out of thin air and, you know, recreating the wheel. It's more of drawing inspiration from others and fine-tuning it to, to our style. Do you have a texture, maybe, that you go to almost as a default and try to stop yourself occasionally and say, no, 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 I've been using that a little bit too much lately. Maybe we should scale out of this. No, no, man. I, I've, I've been saying this for a long time. Uh, I hate the word favorite. I don't have a favorite of anything. Um, because I think, you know, once you start having a favorite, you find yourself in a pigeonhole of using it over and over and over and over again. You know, we have philosophies, we have understandings of, of you know, good design directions in our office um, you know, that we follow through with, with almost every single project, but nothing that is, you know, specification, if you will, that we just kind of cookie cutter, you know, from concept to concept. And that's a, that's a good statement too, where you just say, if you do start to have a favorite, you are kind of just in, in this rut of doing the same thing over yeah, and over you're again. You're not reinventing yourself. And I as mean, somebody, even like a menu, right? I mean, oh, you constantly sure. need to reinvent that menu oh. to keep people interested and keep, uh, keep people coming back. And figure out what goes with your operations and what's going to yeah. do whatever. As a kid, you would draw, I suspect, or drafting came across while you were in college? Drafting came across when I was in college. When I was a kid, uh, I would draw Bart Simpson over and over <laughs> and over and over again. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe it was an easy cartoon character for me to trace and, 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 and draw. But, you know, between that and just... Um, yeah, I would take things apart a lot. Um, I would, uh, I would constantly like take my Nintendo set and take it apart and put it back together because I was just so interested on what the hell was inside this gray box. Um, and what makes, you know, Super Mario walk on my screen. So Did it not work? that, no, not that I ever figured out. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> but I can tell you Super Mario, they don't walk across my screen anymore when I took the thing apart and tried putting it back together. But, um, you know, I was just always curious as a kid uh, when it came to understanding how things were assembled, put together, and, you know, I was always sketching, so. So you were working for another company before the recession. Yeah. As a architect. Yeah. And as that happened, there were layoffs, I'd imagine. Right? Correct. The whole office was laid off. So from that point, I assume 2008, 2009 area of those months were a rough time, and then at some point you just said, I'm just going out and starting it myself. Yeah. It wasn't a long time. Um, so the, the market crashed, I think it was August of 2008. Um, I remember it vividly. We were actually having an office outing, uh, in New York city. We were going to visit the MoMA and, uh, it was the time that at the corner of the streets, they were selling newspaper in these racks you know, and the headline was the, of the day before, you know, Dow Jones crashes 500 points. Um, so, you know, that was eye-opening. Uh, but we still had, you know, a, a handful of clients uh, still in, in our, you know, in our mixed uh, to keep the office alive. But then it was 
I think the first or second week of December that the last client we had um, pulled the contract and, and the company had no clients to support us. So I would think it was the day or two after that that news came through. The partners of the firm sat us in their conference room and uh, you know, one of the partners was crying. It was just whatever, it was sad, um, but laid us all off. And so, you know, so some people went outside and go, went to go smoke a pack of cigarettes. You know, others went to their desk and cried. I went back to my desk and I took the resume that I had and I quickly started putting it on Craigslist and everywhere else that I can plaster to find another job. Um, but realized real quick that no one was, was responding. Uh, and the few people that did respond, you know, were going to pay me minimum wage. I was going to be some slave in a closet office in New York City. So I had no debt. I had no kids. I had no responsibilities. I'm like, I had nothing to lose. So I took the leap of faith and, and ran with it January 1. So within three weeks, I went from having no job to having a job. Or having your own business to, to yeah. that effect, right? I created my job. So now the other question is too, <laughs> because people start businesses all the time and then they go, all right, now where are the people? How, how did you start getting the contracts to do what you're doing from literally almost nothing? Network, 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 network. Um, you know, uh, I brag about it a lot. Um, since, since 2009, to even now, I must spend maybe like 500 bucks annually on branding and marketing, which has to do with me uh, pulling together portfolios, um, little portfolio pa- uh, pamphlets that I send out to clients you know, that, are, that are meeting me for the first time. I think it's a little bit more personal than just giving them a business card or telling them to go surf my website. Um, but uh, literally, it's all word of mouth. Um, you know, when I first started... I literally called everyone that I can possibly think of. Um, those that were in the profession, those that were in the industry, to family, to friends, uh, to friends of friends, and just let everyone know what I was doing. And, you know, it started off small, um, but it, it grew first year from 2009 to 2010. I grew about 20%. I kept growing about 20% annually. Uh, year over year, and and now with this huge construction boom that we're having, and you know the strong market, uh, in my opinion, uh, you know we've pretty much doubled in size in the past year and a half. So it's it's been good, but it's all been word of mouth. What are the majority of designs that you're currently doing? Uh, I know, so restaurants are a piece of things, but you're also doing some interior design, I guess, and residential and buildings maybe? Yeah, so we're we're a full service architectural and interior design firm. Um, we focus on design and project management uh, for the residential and restaurant industry. Um, we, we also tried focusing on retail, but it never really took off. So, uh, Largely, the work that we have is about 70% restaurant work and about 30% uh, residential. So, you know, we are, you know, master planning from, from inception, you know, to all of, you know, the design phases that we typically know of, you know, all the way into construction administration and, you know, doing our best to give our clients a turnkey product, um, you know, with as much support and service that we can offer. And so now to take back uh, to Barteca, that was 2012, you said? Yeah. 
you, you said they took a leap of faith and that's maybe because you didn't have as much restaurant build out experience at that point or I, I guess so. I mean, but you know, again, you know, going back to, to networking, my old boss, uh, who laid me off, his office was across the street from the Bartek headquarters. Um, when Sasha was looking for someone to, to head his design department, he went back to my boss because they were on good, you know, working and friendly relationship, uh, asked him if he knew of anyone. And my old boss told him to give me a call. And that's kind of how all of that played out. And again, I knew nothing about restaurant other than opening up a menu and ordering from it. So whatever my boss told Sasha, you know, really Sasha went with his gut and, and gave me an opportunity. And that, that leads me into saying, okay, we know how to do designs as we've been doing that for some time now. But now in restaurants, it does tend to be a little bit more of a science as where maybe you create intentional bottlenecks or where you need very open areas for acoustics or whatever it may be specifically. Uh, but in that transition of starting to do more and more restaurants, after you did the first Bar Taco or Barcelona, did you maybe learn some things that said, oh, I have to change this in the future to make this more, uh, more presentable for people to congregate or enjoy their food or, you know, whatever it may be. Constantly, 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 constantly. I mean, every single project. Um, we did uh, an 11th month postmortem walkthrough where uh, we went back in uh, at 11 months after we opened up the doors uh, to basically assess how the restaurant looked generally to see how the materials we selected were, hold, were, held, were holding up. Um, to talk to operations, to talk to the manager, to talk to the bartenders, to talk to the chefs, to talk to the dish, uh, to the dishwasher, and interview all of these people to see what we did well, to see what we did poorly. Um, you know, to to sitting down t for lunch and, and dinner to, you know, also kind of uh, feel the experience that everyone else was experiencing. Um, and basically just being hyper, hyper, hyper critical on everything that we were doing. Uh, you know, and, and some of it and most of it really was, was hard to take because right? it was all kind of a self-reflection of, of how well you did. Uh, but we learned so much through that process of just how to better the product, uh, how to refine it, how to better the experience and all of it. Uh, you know, even to this day with, with my clients, it's all about right customer experience. You know, what can we do better? to better serve our guests, to have them experience something that they haven't experienced anywhere else, um, you know, how to reduce ticket times, how to, you know, put on a better show, you know, from a bartender's perspective uh, to sell more drinks. Um, you know, we were constantly reevaluating everything we did. So you touched on a little bit what I'm going to ask, but when you design a house, like let's say you're building a house from scratch, the the end the end success is the happiness of like the people that are going to live there right so as long as they move in and they're happy with what everybody look what how the house looks and how they live in it like okay then we consider the house as a, a success is a restaurant like how do you ultimately gauge was this a successful build out or a failed build out because the owner can have an idea and walk in and like love the way the build out is but then you know the place flops 
or, you know, maybe their sales aren't, you know, whatever happens. And it's not always necessarily due to the build out. Sometimes people don't know what they're doing or the product is not right or the location is not right or whatever. But is there like a benchmark that you say, is it different for a restaurant? Like, how do you gauge that? Yeah, again, I think that benchmark is that 11th month postmortem walkthrough, you know. um, So not numbers per se, but just like. Listen, you know, we're constantly getting comment cards forwarded to us, you know, uh, particularly when it's critical on on how a restaurant operates or or how a restaurant feels or if it's too loud. You know, well, why is it too loud? You know, so we're constantly getting that feedback. you know, is the, is the question more on why restaurants fail because of design or? No, I guess what I'm saying is more like, is there, is there a, when you're designing a restaurant, you want to hit a certain number and do you have to design it in a way that's not just aesthetically pleasing, but that's going to generate the sales numbers too that it needs to generate in the space. Got it. So the performer of the restaurant. So yeah. So, I mean, it all comes down to the performer, the economic model or the economic model of, of, of whether or not your restaurant's going to be successful or not. So, you know, having an understanding, uh, and I didn't really get too much into this, um, you know, with my current or past clients, you know, they had someone on the accounting side do it, but, you know, I have uh, an understanding of, you know, they have a rent roll, they have operating costs, um, they have a certain ROI that they want to hit, and, you know, all of it backs into how many seats and how many times they can turn that seat every single night. So, you know, having that understanding of, of, of how many seats they need to perform their numbers is pretty much my kind of get-go to laying out a restaurant. You're contributing to restaurant success, obviously, through the build-out as well. But to, you know, touch on what you just said, Just, too, was there's a whole other aspect of that, too. And that's how, how is the restaurant run? Does the owner know what he or she is doing in the restaurant to actually bring money in, bring clients in. And it's not just an architectural issue that occurs on that side of things, no? Well, but I, I, before you jump into that, I think it's important that you're bringing the right person to do the design that you want to do as well. Because, like, you can hire you can hire anybody to do, like, an architectural design, right? But if you have no experience in, like, a, we walk through that restaurant that we almost took in Connecticut, mm-hmm. right? And we walked into that floor plan, and I think all of us were kind of like, I don't understand how they ran that, right? Did that? So, you know, part of that is just not having, not setting it up right to like execute what you need to do. And if you're not hiring the right person to kind of like guide you or talk you out of your crazy idea, you know, like I want to put this over here and someone's to say like, well, it's not going to work. You know, and, and I think I better understand your question now. Um, you know, it's finding that balance in design and, and in operations uh, and just general functionality of what a restaurant needs to work well and feel good um, is important, particularly when, when hiring a designer. You know, architects are notorious, and I'm an architect licensed, um, but just given the formal training that I've had, um, you know, I kind of shy away from from the norm. But generally, architects always want to kind of over elaborate uh, and almost kind of um, over accentuate code requirements. You know, if, if a 36 inch opening is required, they're going to make it a 42 inch opening. You know, but you know, one of the things that if you're not well trained in restaurant design, you know, everything is about footsteps, right? You know, mm-hmm. the less steps you take, the quicker the service is going to be. 
the less steps you take away from your service station, the more service and attention your guest is going to get in that table. Um, so, you know, the proper placement of a waiter station to a certain dining section and making sure you have enough waiter stations in your restaurant, you know, to accommodate the amount of seats and sections you have are incredibly important because the last thing you want, right, is to have your server, you know, serving a table, table 10 at the front of the restaurant to have to go all the way behind into the kitchen to get them a fork to come all the way back because you know when they get back into the kitchen, they're going to be looking at their cell phone to see who texted them. And it's going to take that much longer for that guest to get that fork. Rather, if you give that server, that waiter station, and everything they need in that waiter station to serve that section, there's no reason for that server to leave, which optimizes guest experience. So that's you know, what we bring to the table um, you know, with all of our projects. I, I think steps matter tremendously. Uh, and people think I'm crazy all the time when I complain about something uh, as from the bartender's perspective, say I'm working the server well, uh, the service well, and I'm getting slammed with tickets during prime time. I have to uh, not only make the drinks that are somewhat near the well, but then I have to walk all the way around the block to go get wine glasses just to bring wine glasses back over the service station. Uh, I go, why do we have all these glasses of wine on the other side of the thing when the service printer is right here? And now I've just walked back and forth six times for each ticket pretty much to have to get these wine glasses. The kids are like, just just deal with it. Oh, are you crazy? I go, yeah, but the workload could be so much shorter. We don't have to have this many bartenders like tending to one single ticket. It makes no sense. And, and it can be as easy as putting uh, a drain board next to you, uh, you know, with, with glass racks that go underneath and clean glasses on top, you know, for you to have everything you need within arm's reach, or at least, you know, with a 180 degree turn of your torso, you know, which is really how we design. Um, and making sure that every single one of these cocktail stations are identical so that you're not retraining, you know, with every movement that you take. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's some of the errors that, that and issues that, that we keep seeing. So yeah. I... Uh, I, so I think in a, like generally, I think people go into a restaurant and they think they're going in and they look at the menu and they order with whatever they order. They might look around and notice the design or something like that, but a lot of it is subconscious where you might not even notice what you're even experiencing, but it's like obviously thought behind things that not the regular people are even going to notice. What are some like, I'm going to use hidden gems again, I know we referenced it, but like what are some hidden gems that you do in design to make people like order certain things or like that would generate cocktail sales versus, you know, ordering a water, things like that, that would, that are focused in the design that make you feel like, make people feel more like, comfortable. Or yeah. More, more yeah. comfortable. They walk in and be like, you know what? I, I want a margarita. You know, like obviously there's a, you might think you just decided you had a margarita, but also subconsciously there might've been things in the design that are making you do that. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, not to keep, talking about bar taco in Barcelona. I, I said but, margarita. I just said like, you know, they, they, I mean, they do it incredibly well. Um, you know, there's a reason why there's a bowl of limes, you know, at the corner of every single one of their bars, which generally faces the front door. And right next to that bowl of limes, there is a juicer. And right behind that juicer, there is someone squeezing the juice, you know, and that whole visual that you get the moment you walk in. I mean, there's nothing else that you want 
than a margarita that's freshly squeezed by the limes that I see right there. Um, Barcelona does it well uh, um, too, you know, by putting um, the whole charcuterie station and tapas station, you know, in any one of their restaurants, at least the newer restaurants, um, you know, that charcuterie station can be seen throughout the entire restaurant, um, but it can most definitely be seen by the front door. And more importantly, we always put it on access to the bathrooms, right? Most of the people that attend your restaurants are going to the bathroom at least once, you know, and having them walk by a display or a mountain of cheese and cured hams and olives, you know. I mean, I want it right now. I yeah. want to see it. You're just talking about <laughs> I'm just <it> imagining. <laughs> you know, there are those, you know, gestures, if you will, through the power of design, you know, that can help generate some sales. We, we visited Barcelona in Brookline a while, a couple of years ago. Right when Remember? you work in, when you walk in, what do you first say? Yeah, exactly. The charcuterie and all that stuff. When and I, I referenced actually, that was one of the best meals I ever had because we sat down. I don't even think we looked at a menu. No, right. No. You just told the chef, you know, send whatever out, and we were like stuffed afterwards. I was, you know, it was great. How much of and like some of the stuff was table side, right? Right. I remember correctly. The Most big, of it. Yeah, everything they brought out. Um, what do you have to think about when you and it was. Tuesday night, the place was packed. Um, what do you have to think about when you're designing that, like the flow of people coming in and out and then having like a full restaurant at the same time to make sure that that works? Like we mentioned the bathroom in the Marinic when we got in was the same entrance for our customers to go to the bathroom and the entrance to the kitchen at the same time. So if we're like busy and running food and people are searching for the bathroom, it created like a problem. Dangerous corner. A very dangerous. Yeah, so when you're doing like table side and stuff like that, those are added things to design. It is because when you do table side and you do small top of dishes, and I mean, you saw how many dishes were on our. Yeah. Right? You start talking about. It was great. You start talking about, well, how big of a table area do I need to accommodate all of these dishes? And then on the back end from there is where am I putting all of these dishes? You know, how quickly, you know, where do I strategically place the dishwashing station? So that, you know, dishes, all of these dishes from all of these small tapas, small tapas is um, whatever, um, you know, all of it being washed, circulated, a place for it to store, to it get pushed back forward to the expo line, you know, all of that needs to get thought about as well. Um, and just, you know, creating and help creating that experience that, that you witnessed, you know, when we dined there. Yeah. Now, there's also things over time that kind of have disappeared from restaurants, maybe because function just wasn't there. Uh, say an Applebee's pluffy style booth where food would always get stuck in the cracks. And the idea was the server would come around and they would clean the booth crack. Realistically, the server never cleaned the booth crack and the thing was always dirty. There was food in it. You could find gum in it, whatever it is. As of more recent, I feel like you don't see booths with all this plush anymore. It's just a firm chair that you're sitting in for the most part. Is that something that kind of evolves into let's take responsibility away from maybe the server? That way things are easier to clean, quicker to clean, and just get things moving? Absolutely. I mean, that that definitely takes part in it. Um, low maintenance, um, you know, products and designs uh, is always a huge factor, right? Because labor costs... Is- not going down, um, you know. So, so we're trying to design things that are that are easy to maintain. Uh, again, so that that server, that operator, is spending more time on guests than 
you know, walking around with a toothbrush, you know, cleaning in between crevices. Um, but I think, you know, probably the bigger driver in, in this direction and shift from these plush banquettes and booths, you know, to more of the reclaimed wood is, again, back to the diners, your demographics, right? Uh, I mean, I hate dining in a restaurant where I feel like I don't belong or I feel is unapproachable or, you know, I, I like casual dining. Um, I like that just, you know, hardwood stool or chair that, you know, does its purpose and I have an incredible meal and, you know, it's it's done efficiently and effectively and, you know, who really gives a shit what kind of leather is on a seat? Um, I, I feel, I feel, channels, what? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, go I feel like those plush seats actually keep people there too long and then I can't turn the booth. <laughs> too comfortable. You know? Yeah. Then the springs go out on the seat and now you're sinking in too far mm-hmm. and your table's higher than your chin. You know, it, it's just... Uh, f- further into design aesthetics and, you know, you were just mentioning Barcelona, which I was just in recently. We put almost barriers in throughout a restaurant to help the flow. And that barrier could be made of anything. It could be a wall up to your waist or it could be a wall completely top to bottom or in this Barcelona uh, relevance that I'm stating here is it's actually wine bottles for the wine cellar that creates a glass wall that you could somewhat see through, but simultaneously it blocks sound and it does create a separate environment from the bar versus the dining room, which is rather nice. Um, this can be done a multitude of ways, I presume. Yeah, I mean, just uh, another feature uh, that Barcelona has uh, is the flu wall. Um, they have one here in, in New Haven, um, but they have many more of these flu wall features in, in a lot of their other restaurants across the country. But similar to the wine wall, um, basically it's it's clay flues that you would have uh, t- traditionally used for chimney liners to get the smoke out of the firebox you know, out to the top of the chimney. And, and if you turn that horizontally and you have varying sizes of them and you stack them organically, you know, it creates this cool wall that is about 18 inches wide that when you're walking perpendicular to it, you can't really see the dining room. But if you stand parallel to it, you see right into the dining. So it creates that separation, but yet you're still connected, if you will. Um, you know, curtains, soffits, sliding barn doors, um, you know, the back of a high banquette uh, that gets incorporated into bookshelves. You know, we use all of these elements, you know, not to kind of create walls, right? Because we want the space to and the energy to, uh, in this space to kind of radiate throughout. I should have said dividers, really, right? Yeah, right. But, you know, it, it's all about, at the end of the day, it's all about using these features to, to create intimate spaces rather than these dining halls. Um, but using these features in a way that, that they become transparent, they become flexible so that when you do need a dining hall and you are hosting a wedding in your restaurant, you know, you can move them out of the way and accommodate that, you know, so flexibility, um, is also a big feature in, in what we think about, you know, these type of divider walls. So there's, there's different pieces or there's different times of your restaurant or bar, with business, and there could be one person in it, or there can be a hundred people in it. Uh, now, for example, one of the bars that I went into, it was a the size of the ceiling was about a two story bar, and it was extremely empty when there was one single person sitting in the room. 
Um, one of these things that I did to try to conquer through that is purchase rope lights. And I hung those halfway through the ceiling uh, at the top of the first floor, essentially, to create some type of division so somebody's not sitting there in this huge empty room. Yeah. Um, but I've seen other ideas of build-outs where partitions were able to open up as the room got more and more crowded. That way you would keep people in a little bit of a funnel. And as the night came, you'd open it up to make the room expand a little bit bigger so everyone's not on top of each other. Is there, is there something that you do architecturally in some of these restaurants that allow you to move these partitions out of the way to expand with the amount of people that are in there? Yeah, so, you know, uh, going back to, to the sliding barn doors, um, you know, we, we've in the past designed uh, these elaborate barn door systems. Some hang from a steel beam, some just hang or rest on the floor on a, on a special uh, ball bearing um, uh, track. track. Thank you. Um, but to your point, you know, no one wants to be that first person in that restaurant. And more importantly, that first person wants to feel comfortable and inviting, uh, invited uh, when they do walk in so that they don't, again, feel uncomfortable. So, you know, having layers, um, you know, in a restaurant and, and, and creating these layers through these dividers is important. But you also touched upon scale, right? Walking into this cavern, if you will, that's just soulless um, is something that we try to stay away from. So when you walk into Eugene's, I don't know if you guys noticed, but you know, when you walk in, particularly off of Main Street, there is a soffit over the front door. Um, and it's it's a design uh, technique that I learned from a very notable architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. I don't know if he rings a bell, but when you walk into any of his uh, buildings, when you open up that front door, he compresses the ceiling. O- almost obnoxiously compresses it, but he does so to kind of create this experience of, you know, just creating this vestibule that is that is small in scale so that when you walk through the vestibule, the restaurant opens itself up to you. Uh, but you need to be careful about how much it opens itself up because you don't want to create that cavern. So in Eugene's, you know, we had that soffit over the front door over Main Street to kind of compress you. You walk through the wood doors, and then you have the acoustical ceiling that's dropped down to 10 feet, which caps the bar. So we use the drop ceiling to kind of define the bar zone. And then you walk into where the kitchen is, the ceiling steps up another two feet to kind of create that zone. And then you walk all the way into the back where you have that lounge seating and that mezzanine and the ceiling opens itself up entirely there naturally because it has that skylight. But there's this whole kind of escalating effect that we worked with the ceiling to keep the scale, to keep it approachable, um, um, you know, and to make it inviting. I, I did notice that while seeing it, Eugene's. And for those of you that are listening on your phone, Eugene's Diner is in Portchester, New York. You could look it up and kind of follow along with what these places actually look like. Um, Eugene's Diner, that is. Now, also to say Bar Taco in Portchester, for example, there used to be at least a film that was kind of always playing on the wall. And through the bar and nightlife, I notice that we create movement a lot of times to compensate for people maybe standing around. Uh, nobody wants to be in the bar where there's absolutely zero movement happening. They feel stagnant. And to get around that, maybe some places have go-go dancers. Maybe some places have light shows 
Bar always, Taco always, heard, always, always trying to sell sex. sex always. Guy, you know? <laughs> Bar, Bar Taco had a movie playing in the background. Uh, I think Fortina also does this for the majority of their yeah. time there too. Yeah. Is this is something that is in, intentionally created? I presume no to keep movement happening where there is none. Absolutely. Um, you know, but the other tool uh, that we use to help create movement is ceiling fans. Um, you know, dual purpose. You know, one to keep air moving. Uh, but two, to keep, you know, a movement in the ceiling where traditionally you wouldn't see any movement there. Uh, and just Bartaco, for an example, is seeing that slow moving fan, you know, just creates some visual interest rather than just a stagnant ceiling. Um, but also kind of transports you back to that beach in Mexico. Those are some other techniques. You, you posted on your Instagram the other day, RD Studio Inc. By the way, I'll plug that for you. Um, shopping for chairs on yeah. the Lower East Side, right? How how important is sourcing stuff like that and like trying to like get down and find like random places and finding this chair in this spot or you know what wood you're going to use for the wall in this spot uh, other than like going to you know some online thing where everybody can just go get chairs and it's the same chair that every other restaurant has. You know, I can't stress how important it is to get your butt out of the chair and, and go out to these vendors, you know, talk to these artisans, to these suppliers, because there's so many products out there that it's it's overwhelming. And then you throw the internet into it, it's just mind-boggling. Um, you know, but for us, we, we source pretty much everything uh, in the restaurant with the exception of the small wares package. Um, and, you know, we've... Our best finds are the are the items that we weren't looking for. Uh, just randomly walking around, uh, you know, the factory that we were in in Brooklyn the other day uh, and stumbling upon the chair that was the chair, you know, that we weren't thinking of. Um, you what know, we, specifically made it the chair? Because I get what you mean by that. But you know, you it, it was a bent wood chair. It's classic. The stain was perfect. The spindles on the back of the chair tied in to the architecture that, uh, and the interior design that were set forth in this restaurant in D.C. It just, the halo was over the chair. And it just, <laughs> you know, it, it was that moment of that is the chair. Yeah. Um, you know, to walk around the flea markets of Brimfield, Massachusetts, where they have quarterly uh, these huge tents laid out over acres of fields uh, where these uh, vintage vendors uh, from all around the world come uh, and set up shops and basically put on display their findings of, of what they found in an old schoolhouse that was being thrown away to just random trickets, really, uh, that, you know, we just use as inspiration and, and, and use to kind of make our restaurants unique. Um, so there's a, there's a drinking game out there that you have to do a shot every time Jay says the word sustainability. Uh. Um, I'm going to save everybody a drink right now. And I'll just ask you how much focus or, you know, obviously do some people care about, like you just said, if it's a repurposed, repurposed wood or something that was used before, is that, is that, or upcycling, somebody had to take a shot, you know, (laughs) um, you know, is that like a focus for people or is it more just like kind of the quality find? You know, it's really, unfortunately it's not. Um, I have very few clients that, 
that even approach the word sustainable, particularly when it comes to building out a restaurant. We can introduce uh, him to Jay. He says it all the time. What's that? I said we can introduce him to Jay. He says it all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, we repurpose a lot, um, you know, by going to these flea markets and, you know, getting old factory lights and, you know, picture frames and artwork and things that are going to get naturally thrown away and, and repurpose them as the decor of the restaurant. Um, we use a lot of reclaimed wood, um, you know, from our source in, in South Windsor, Connecticut. Uh, that brings some sustainable aspects to it. But when it comes to, you know, green design and energy saving techniques and, and things of that nature, you know, it's pretty difficult to achieve in, in, in a restaurant just given the amount of power um, and energy that's that's needed to cook a dish. I went into a bar and was looking to fix this bar up that needed a little bit of work. Um the first thing I asked the guys was, what's my budget? Give me a budget to work with here. They go, what do you mean a budget? I said, well, we need to fix a lot of things in the bar, and I need to know where I could spend and where I have to be frugal. So you say reclaim wood. I used a lot of reclaim wood stuff because, obviously, that's free for the most part, depending yeah. on where you find this. Uh, did I have to put my own labor in? Yeah, I had to sand these things down. I had it's to sand them myself. You, it's free if you reclaim it yourself. Well, that's well, I, I did the reclaiming. Is what <laughs> well, I also took these pieces of woods from pallet, maybe, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, on the side of the road, someone was trying to get rid of. I said, I could use that. You know, why leave it here on the side of the road? Um, eventually, I wound up doing a lot with very little. But when we said earlier in the show here that guys that are looking to develop their space, they the budget's just not there for what they want to do. Is it ever something even suggested where you say, hey, you know, we could get these, we could get costs down by sourcing differently. Absolutely. Uh, you know, for example, the chairs, you know, going directly to a vendor, going directly to a source, um, you know, opening up uh, your own national accounts, you know, with lighting manufacturers and tile manufacturers, you know, drastically reduces cost, material costs. You know, just remember when you hire a contractor and, and they're really important in the whole process of, of building a, a space. But, you know, there are certain elements that that I think and recommend typically, uh, you know, for an owner to pull out of the contractor's scope of work, like 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 light fixtures. Um, it's an easy order, right? You have a light fixture package. You have 10 lights that you want to order and redecorate your bar with. You know, just go directly to the source and buy it and give it to the contractor for him to install, right? Because when you go to a contractor to install light fixtures, he's putting his 20% on it. The electrician's putting his 20% on it. The electrician is buying it from a distributor who's putting their 20% on it. And the distributor is putting their 20% on it from when they buy it directly from the manufacturer, you know, so you're paying almost triple the cost of that light fixture, just as a, an example. So there's that. And, you know, just going back to the chairs, you know, we were looking at a chair online that was going to be $269, um, you know, and we went down to Brooklyn and found this chair that was, again, the chair, you know, for $130, you know, just Having, you know, having that network and, and, and having those contacts um, and knowing who to call for whatever you need, you know, will, will save 
quite a bit of money from the bottom line. Plus, you had a story behind it too, so you can maybe maybe you have the story uh, of finding the chair. You have a story <laughs> of finding the chair. You, you you know you can talk about somebody says, oh, I like these chairs. Yeah, it's all about experiences. You know, and you have the story. That's where the storytelling. Every restaurant's telling a story one way Correct. or the other. What's on your your list of future endeavors that you want to get into? I mean, there's guys listening to this all over the world that may say, "Hey, I want to contact you." And yeah, one guy you in China. There's a there's Still a couple guys to in out China. That, that <laughs> one person in China that's listening. Um, you know, my long term plan. Uh, obviously, I love what I do. Um, you know, I'm really fortunate to say that that not a day goes by that I consider what I do work. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's just a passion of mine and I don't see myself ever stop, uh, stopping doing this. Um, but, uh, you know, one of some of the other avenues that I want to go in is, um, furniture design, um, you know, kind of coming out with my own line of, of furniture and chairs, you know, uh, to, to start pulling those, you know, into, you know, some of these other concepts that we're working on. Uh, long, long term, uh, you know, when I get arthritis in my fingers and I can't draw anymore, you know, possibly be a developer and kind of focus on building spec homes, um, you know, running down that path. Mini, mini homes? Mini, out of storage mini, cubes? Mini, mini homes, yeah. No McMansions. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have seen this, right? They, the tiny home movement? Yes. Yeah. You purchase the container, you get this thing outfitted, and then really that's a game of Tetris at the end of the day. How many things could I compress into one area that's to exactly make this right. functional? I'm telling you right now, my wife, Nicole, she would, she wants to have one of those. I do too. I don't, I don't yeah, know. She wants to put you in it in the backyard. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> So, Rocco, we'll, we'll put all of your notes on where anybody can find you in the show notes below. Um, guys, click your phone and just swipe over to the side and you'll find the link over to rdstudios.com. Uh, we'll throw your email in there, too. So somebody in Wyoming might say, hey, I'm trying to build out this restaurant. Let's or the sky one guy out. in China. Yeah. Or that one guy in China. Exactly. But it's rdstudio-inc.com. Hey, there you go. That's the correction. <laughs> we'll throw those in the show notes for he you. Just, he just learned my name, too, so don't worry about <laughs> it. It happens. French for years. Just found out the name. Rocco, thanks for coming through. Of course, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Make sure you hit the follow button on your platform to see our shows pop up in your feed. We've got plenty of in-depth interviews and interesting guests to come. Want restaurant tips and tricks? Grab the newsletter link in the show notes.